Welcome to the Global Discussion, discussions with creatives, leaders and thinkers. My name's Simon Hodgkins and I'm joined by Dr. Barnaby Taylor. Delighted that you're here today. Welcome to the podcast and let me begin by asking you to introduce yourself to our worldwide audience. So over to you. Well, thank you very much, Simon. Uh, nobody actually calls me Dr. Barnaby Taylor. Everybody calls me Barney, so please do. In fact, the only people that do call me that is the Bank of Ireland, because I deliberately changed my details just so someone would. Um, I'm Barney. I am an author and academic. I am based in Dublin, and I have been here since 2004. Um, I'm a lecturer in film and creative media, but actually nowadays... Moving image theory is only a very small part of what I do. I do a lot of work with digital content creation. I do a lot of collaborative filmmaking with students. I teach digital branding, um, LinkedIn, professional development, creative writing, reflection. Basically, if you need someone and you can find me, I'll do it for you. So it's nice to be here, Simon. Thank you for inviting me. Well, thank you, Barney. It's great to have you here. And obviously, we we love talking to creatives. You certainly uh, meet that criteria. Can we just dive into a little bit about, because I know you studied film for many, many years, yeah. uh, back in Kent, I think it was, University yeah, it was, of Kent. Yeah. So maybe take us a little bit through the journey in terms of your study, you know, what got you into that, where the passion comes from. And obviously, you've, I know you've, you've lectured in film at Trinity College Dublin, which is a globally yeah. well-known, recognised... Um, yeah third level institution for education and of course with Dublin Business School you're very engaged there too so maybe yeah. give us a little bit about the journey where did that inspiration come from what what got you into that mode happy to it was a hundred pound bet with my father in a small town on the south coast of England um, I fell out of secondary school towards the end of the 80s with one a or two a levels I should say and little ambition drifted through lots of jobs. I was a paste-up artist for a while in the days when they killed off hot metal in newspaper printing. They then hired young people like me just to cut things out. So I was involved in that. And then I lost my job eventually to desktop publishing. And basically I spent my early 20s just moaning. And I used to go and see my dad and he would be like, this has got to come to an end. I bet you a hundred pounds you don't do something to change your life. And I was like, okay. This is easy money. Uh, did an A-level at night school in film studies and just chose it because I didn't want to do economics or psychology. Was in a class full of 17-year-olds. It was a night school, but some of them were picking up an extra A-level and they were all doing UCAS applications. And I was in a job at the time where redundancies were being floated and it all just kind of fell into place. I sat the A-level took my redundancy, cleared my debts. A friend of mine offered me a job in Italy for the summer and then got a phone call from my mum saying the University of Kent have offered you a place. So flew back from um, Italy and turned up at the University of Kent in Canterbury, not knowing what to expect. I had only applied to them because they were kind of like the closest place to my hometown. I didn't want to go hundreds of miles away and hate it. And then I actually found, I, was, I arrived when I was 26, I think, and it was the first thing in my life I've ever been able to do, which is actually just kind of like study film. So seemed to be okay at that, got a first in my undergraduate degree. I was able to get government funding for a research master's, which was uh, quite nice because research, uh, sorry, postgraduate study is very expensive. 
So then got a three-year scholarship and um, signed a book deal with Manchester University Press while I was writing my PhD and then flew over to Dublin on September the 1st, 2004 to take up a three-year post at Trinity. So I can honestly say, and I still haven't paid my dad the money, so if he's watching this, <laughs> but really, I suppose, Simon, for me, education has transformed my life entirely. So my entire kind of my true north, as some would say, or my raison d'etre is to share the opportunity for other people to have their lives transformed in that way. That's wonderful. And I know you did your doctorate there in philosophy as well, right, in terms of the PhD. Yeah, yeah, that was, I wrote about the films of the British New Wave, which 1959-63, these kind of kitchen sink dramas. And uh, obviously the pressure of a PhD is, I think they say you need to make an original contribution to the body of knowledge. It's not quite chemistry or gene therapy, but I, I published a book on eight British films, uh, which, you know, I don't get any revenue from anymore. No one reads it. Even my dad gave up after reading the introduction. But hey, I mean, you know, I never thought that I'd ever get anywhere near to a university, let alone complete an undergraduate. I just found that I could do it. So, you know, I try and create that sense in other people that if I can do it, you can do it. That's a wonderful journey. And that brings us right up to date, obviously, in terms of your lecturing in film, digital media, the world of content. Yeah. And that's really what I want to go next, if I can. Yeah. Um, in terms of content, it's a busy, noisy world. And everybody seems to have a lot of tools today that we didn't have 20 years ago to produce content. And there's a lot of people putting stuff out there. But you must have seen changes in the world of film, in the world of content mm. not just platform and technology related but in mm. terms of you know the culture the style the the medium the way it's put together how you get that cut through how you get that audience what is it from your perspective from your viewpoint your vantage point what do you think of that when you look out over the landscape and you have that knowledge of you know the film industry and the, mm. you know lecturing in film for that period of time mm. uh, what's the insights from somebody at the top of their game in this area it's a good question i mean i, I recently completed a uh, a research project which was a global survey of kind of learning teaching and assessment and one of the things that's very apparent and this was apparent following the pandemic is that higher education is broken and those old models are no longer suitable for everybody. Not everybody wants to do something for three years. Not everybody wants to pay 10 grand to do it. So one of the things I'm seeing now is a kind of a fracturing of the traditional relationship between learners and lecturers. And actually I have people in my first year classes now who are expert color graders and have been working in television or are drone masters. It's just that they want to get some kind of qualification which is recognized in the EU. So they may have come from Brazil or Argentina and have really illustrious showreels. And then they're coming into an environment with, obviously, with the very recent focus on the Irish film industry, the revenue generating possibilities for external people to come in and start putting money into this, the building of new studios. My sense is really that there's never been a better time to just get yourself together with three of your friends 
One of you's got a MacBook, one of you's got an iPhone, buy a gimbal, download Filmic Pro, and just make that thing. Don't wait for someone to give you three years of permission to make that thing. Don't wait till you graduate. Get out there and make it. And you look at recent films, too, I've really been struck with at the moment. I'm sure you may have seen After Sun, a very recent film that came out. A beautiful template of how to reimagine filmmaking. There's another fabulous film called A Human Position, which came out last year, 2022, from a director called Anders Emblem. And it's a film about people in a tiny little town in the north of Norway, and nothing happens. And I'm watching this thinking, actually, this is a far simpler thing for the two of us to make or a group of my students. We all know people now who have got really sophisticated kits and it's not beyond any of us to do it. You just need that idea. But I think more than an idea, you just need to be prepared to do it Uh, because a lot of us are still waiting. Oh, well, you know, we're not ready yet or I need this or I need that. But like, you know, the best training is on the job. Just get out there and make a film and see what happens. You can brand it, you can share it, you can put it on LinkedIn. Yeah, I like that a lot. And um, talking about mobile filmmaking in particular, Mm. you probably know Cassius Rayner. He's an award-winning mobile uh, filmmaker. Mm. Uh, He's actually just back from the Ukraine. He's been out there making some film over there. Mm. But um, exactly what you've just described, you know, a, a computer an iPhone. I think he's moved to Sony now because he wants different exposures, et cetera. Uh, But he's using mobile kit, whereas before you would have had to have so much equipment. And as he says, you know, a car to lug it all around with you. Um, And now he can make movies and win awards Mm. shooting. Now there's a lot of talent that he has too. I don't want to just say it's just equipment. You can't take that away. He brings the storytelling to life Mm. through these Mm. mobile tools. And Filmic Pro is one of the things he uses that you mentioned, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, What about the art of storytelling though? Because the ones that seem to resonate, seem to have some kind of a story arc you know being able to tell a story through visual elements seems to be as important now as it's ever been fundamentally i mean is it not the most desirable soft skill to have nowadays to be able to tell stories i mean i think the thing about it is is that we always have good ideas everyone has a hundred good ideas a day but you need people around you to say okay focus on that one let's start putting some flesh on this I've got an input here. So I think that storytelling is also about collaboration and about finding your community, finding your crew. We all tell stories when we're in the pub with friends or if we're over dinner, et cetera. So how can you professionalize those activities? And then what do you do? Do you know someone with a camera? Yes, we do. Do we know someone who's got a car? Yes, we do. So I think storytelling is really interesting. I I currently at the moment in Dublin, the big focus is on Irish language uh, with The Quiet Girl and all of those kind of things. I'm already trying to see what the next voices to be heard on Irish cinema screens are. And I'm convinced it's Portuguese. I teach a lot of Brazilian students who are over here. The Brazilian diaspora in Dublin is huge. And I think there is a real story to be told about coming to Dublin um being a delivery driver struggling with accommodation trying to learn to speak english there's that i think that's one of the next stories that needs to be told and from a a, a different perspective because dublin is that beautiful kind of melting pot of anybody 
although obviously there are some protests at the moment, which is rather bizarre, but it, it has that sense. And I think storytelling is also about creating a platform for new voices to be heard. And I think that's one of the things going forward. If you have that democratization of technology, you and I can make a film, Simon, it's where do we find the next story? And I think it's from voices that haven't been heard yet or are waiting to be heard. So that's my sense. I'm not sure if that answers your question, but that's that's what I've got for you. But you know what? I, I couldn't agree more because I think that the Brazilian community in Dublin and across Ireland is growing and yeah. it is a vibrant community. Yeah. And, you know, to produce film in Portuguese that speaks yeah. to that community at yeah. the, right now, yeah. I think is a void. Um, yeah, you no, know, absolutely. It, it's a strong story. Yeah. It's a strong story. I have a dream, Simon, that um, I want to remake Victoria de Sica's Bicycle Thieves, set in Dublin. It's going to be called Deliveroo or something, and it's about a delivery driver who has their bike stolen and they go on an odyssey around the city. I can already see it in my head with this beautiful kind of golden hour that Dublin seems to have. And then they go to the boot fairs in Ballymun looking for the bike. The story's already written. And it, but it's about the experience of someone new to a city where they don't know anybody. I remember when I flew over, it was three weeks before the start of term, and I wandered around Dublin finding my feet and I knew that it didn't matter how long I wandered around for, I would not bump into one person I knew. Wouldn't be someone passing, hey, I haven't seen you for ages. So I know what it's like to be wholly alone on an island. I've got no family here. I have no relatives or anything. And so that is a real experience for a lot of people. And whilst I can understand the desire to tell the kind of stories that Banshees of Inner Sheeran are telling or A Quiet Girl, et cetera, et cetera, I think there's still space for newer voices. And I think that that's a really important um, voice. You can also imagine Ukrainian films or the, that sort of language cinema, but on Irish film screens, I think, at the IFI or even Cineworld or somewhere if it's big enough. And I think that's because you see this everywhere else, platforms, Instagram, a lot of my students are very active on those platforms. And so just by bringing a collective of creatives together, I think, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's going to happen. It will happen because like, it's already happening. It's just maybe people haven't got the confidence to show us. And what about um, just because I'm thinking about when you you know when you came to Dublin, mm. and obviously you you you're in a nice spot there because Trinity College Dublin is is yeah. a pretty nice uh, yeah yeah pretty yeah. nice pretty nice landmark. But yeah. um, everybody from Trinity themselves having to produce content today to tell mm. stories to yeah. attract investment, attract students, yeah. Yeah. you know, to to sell their studies, their courses, their history, yeah. their pedigree. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, or maybe it's just advertising the uh, the library or, you know, what, whatever yeah. it is, they've got a story to tell. And the yeah. the skills that are required to tell that story now, yeah. I'm, I just want to hark back to something you mentioned yeah. a little while ago, that the type of roles now, whether it's the person, you know, the, the drone pilot yeah. or the, the colour grader that's exceptional yeah. what they do, it's bringing yeah. together that collective of skills, isn't it? It's a bit like putting the band together. You need the, the bass player and the drummer. You do, and, and you need a van and a van driver. No, absolutely. I mean, I think if you look at all of the data, you look at World Economic Forum, I think it's by 2025, 50% of all employees will need to reskill. I mean, when I, 
having got to university late, having spent, I went through just over seven years from beginning to end and then arrived in this country, part of me was thinking, okay, that's my career. And then I thought I would be able to do three weeks on my book and I would do a couple of hours here and a couple of hours there. It doesn't work like that. So I'd spent the last 10 years of my career realizing that actually being a doctor of film isn't enough anymore. So that's why I've moved into lots of other areas because there are really, there are very few jobs for life. Most of us need to constantly be looking to see what's the next thing we need to do. I mean, I remember having a crisis of confidence teaching a class about uh, Soviet montage editing of the 1920s and I couldn't edit. And I thought to myself, I need to address this. So that was a while ago. So we're constantly, you're doing the same thing. We're constantly reinventing. We're looking at new platforms. We're looking at new apps. We are looking to see what other words we can add to our CV, which is the story of us, I suppose. So, I mean, from that perspective, nowadays, you would like to think that having a PhD is the pinnacle. But, you know... Is it? I don't know. I'm at that stage in my life now where I'm thinking, well, what else can I be? Yeah, it, it's interesting as well from a an inclusion perspective. Which mm. I was talking to Steve Pugh recently, and Steve is a he's a chartered mechanical engineer by background. He's a couple mm. of master's degrees through the traditional route, etc. But um, he has a company called the Roadmap MBA. And he's on a mission to provide this sort of free education, you know, 5 billion people around the world. I mean, Steve doesn't have small goals, that's for sure. Mm. But, you know, he he was making a point very similar to what you raised earlier, which is, you know, is the traditional education model fundamentally broken? Because not everybody can follow Steve's path and do two masters. They don't have the funding. They don't have the wherewithal. They don't live in a country where it's available to them. So how does he make this, you know, comparable MBA available to people all over the world. And I think Mm. you're right in terms of some of the studies when you read them about upskilling, changing your role, continually being on this educational uh, journey Mm. um, because the world keeps turning and it keeps getting faster and the tools keep getting better. Absolutely. Absolutely. Lifelong learning, I think is, is the, it sounds very old fashioned to say that, but I mean, and the other thing about this, and Simon, you would know this as well as anybody else. When you get into that mindset, learning becomes addictive. It becomes the extra beat of your heart. It becomes that thing that, uh, it's like creativity. It's that thing you do every day because you don't know what else to do once you've started doing it. And I think it's the same with learning. And, And so I think part of this is actually just being prepared to acknowledge it and say, okay, so what if I have to learn new things? That's That's what I love doing. Now, we all get tired. We all have this. We all have that. There are times when we don't want to learn. But, I mean, who knew in October 2022 that ChatGPT was about to break the world? You know, so what do we do? Ignore it, run and hide, or play with it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think it is it is definitely changing. And I'll come on to ChatGPT because I want to ask you something, particularly in relation to film and content yeah. production yeah, yeah. around that. But... If you go back far enough, you know, the, there are some people that say, well, the, the smart guys and girls coming out, of, coming out of school got the jobs. And then if you weren't that smart, you went on and did a bit more education. And then that changed dramatically. And yeah. the smart ones ended up going on to further education. And if you were had a certain degree of privilege, maybe you went to a fancier place for your education. Yeah. Um, and then there's the rest of the world. 
trying to catch up, you know, and particularly yeah. for, yeah. you know, developing countries, that can be a very different yeah. landscape. Yeah. Um, but to, you mentioned as well at ChatGPT, and I do want to I do want to address that topic with you. <laughs> Not because of the the text element and like everybody's, you know, it's a really hot topic at the moment. And I think, you know, some of the things it's doing, it's wonderful with the data sets that it uses and it's pulling it together and people are using prompts, all that good stuff. However, when you then link it up to something like mid journey and now it's using creative art, it's producing art or imagery, depending on your viewpoint. Yeah. Putting the copywriting issue aside and all the moral dilemmas of right Mm -hmm. and wrong, Mm. and the scraping of internet data but it does make me leap into the world of film and you know creating film in this ai environment with these new tools because some of the big hollywood studios they deploy this already they they're using to de-age people they change voices they use voice synthesizers to recreate um i think it was val kilmer's voice in maverick if i'm not mistaken where ai actually you know speaks his voice because he couldn't at the time due to his illness um and when you look at some of the creations coming out of things today at i suppose a an end user level not the big hollywood studios it's really impressive now as somebody who sits in your seat and looks across this landscape this must have an impact on the world of film and storytelling um and you know i'm thinking about you know, bringing back people who are no longer with us in film, it seems mm. to be coming more and more capable. If there's enough footage, voice, text uh, around that character yeah. that, that the machines can then manipulate, mm. it seems to be getting better and better. I don't think we're quite there yet. I think humans still can maybe spot the subtle differences in most cases, not always. But um, that must really, really change the filmmaking world or not. What are your thoughts on that? Um, I have lots of thoughts on it. I mean, I, I see it as new things to play with, and I think that's fine because a lot of what we do actually is just by testing and playing. I also, and when you were talking, I was thinking about the Beastie Boys, and I was thinking about that there was this explosion of technology which brought about sampling and brought back tracks from the dead, shall we say, and then were brought to new audiences, repurposed all of the technology. There's a great Mark Ronson series on Apple TV where he there's one week he does a, a week on drum machines. And so there's a fascinating and sampling. And so there's this fascinating tradition when people first started sampling i mean um, a guy from de la soul died last week so pioneers in this field and that was incredibly disruptive and people were very very upset that you were taking an old jazz lick and putting it onto a slowed down drum beat from the winstons i wonder whether now we're still in the very early days and at the moment there is just so much stuff it's hard to cut through the chatter I'm using ChatGPT on a daily basis just to keep myself creative as well as see. But I wonder whether there are some parallels with sampling culture and how there was an outcry. Now it's just, it's part of our cultural history, shall we say, that it's, you know, some people are still indignant. But the other side of it is, is it brought old artists back to life. It's brought revenue streams to people who thought their careers were over. Now, I'm not saying necessarily that this will happen, and I know there are lots of concerns about image rights and copyrights and, as you say, trawling the internet, but 
I want to say, Simon, that it's a good thing because every other technology that has at first broken the status quo has turned out to be a good thing. I would say, I mean, like if you even think about something like Wikipedia, when that came out, it was the devil's work. How dare you put facts up available for anybody without being an authority or an expert? Now we seem to have got okay with Wikipedia. I would use it quite regularly. I don't cite it in any academic paper, but it's a it's a fabric uh, or it's part of the fabric of our lives. So I think these things are all going to settle down and we're just going to have more options. I mean, at the end of the day, there is such a, a demand for content that gets opportunities to create content from new directions, I think is good for the world. I may be in a minority at the moment saying that, but I think it's a good thing, Simon, said he naively. Well, I, yeah, I think you make an excellent point because when you talk about things that maybe break things initially and then a whole new industry comes out of it, yeah. Yeah. and when those uh, jazz licks or whatever it was were sampled, yeah. Um, there was pushback. You know, there yeah. was a, you know, there were a group that just wouldn't accept that. And yet now yeah. today, uh, sampling music seems to be something that's it's almost a big business and it, it, well, it is a big business in itself where yeah. artists get paid for the music yeah. that's being sampled. Yeah. And yeah. I think about music as well. You think about things like Napster where people in the early days probably weren't paying for music. They were just downloading it. You yeah, know? absolutely. And, absolutely. Uh, and now we have a, a plethora of, I mean, there's, there's a number of, uh, mm. you know, good streaming services, if that's your thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think the other thing that happened, and I, you make an excellent point, is that sampling got people back in touch with history because they may encounter a, a track from 2006, but they may then see some meta content that says, but this is from, a, you know, a Crusaders album from 1977. And what we do as humans now is we're much more inclined, maybe we've been trained by technology, we'll reference the Crusaders 1977. Spotify will let us find the track and we will then start making these connections because what also happens with the algorithm is it will then suggest, well, if you like this, why not drop into here or here's a bit of Miles Davis or like, you know, wherever we go. So I think actually it's not that the world wants us to, but there's nothing stopping us doing this because we're naturally curious. And I think technology has opened up more avenues for curiosity. I'm sure like me, you're forever going, oh, what's that? And then you look for something and then it leads you somewhere else. And then half an hour later, you're like, oh, I better write that email now. You know, it's it's who we are as people, because also going back to your original thought, it's all storytelling. Here's, here's a record. Like I'm, I'm a big uh, rare soul fan and I, I run a, a soul club, which is original vinyl. And it's all about here was a record that was released in 1972, but there were only 10 copies made and the artist never got any royalties for it, walked off thinking that was their career over. 40 years later, people are uh, selling these records for four, five, six thousand euro and then playing them live. And it's because I think the other thing that's happened, and this is what I like, is that all of this technology and AI and text, I think it's brought us back into the world of objects. I think it's bringing us back to this space where we can make as many electronic books as we want, but it still doesn't beat picking up a book smelling a book, opening the front to see that it was a Christmas present to someone in 1983. 
And so I think that as far as we are advanced with technology, it's bringing us back into the world of objects. And I think that's quite a good thing because we can have both. We can have analog and digital. We can have old and new. And as a society, we can manage that. There's a struggle. There's a bit of turbulence. But hey, we can do it. Yeah, I get that. I like that a lot. And um, in terms of um, video or film, yeah, uh, and you kind of mentioned them earlier, but you know whether your students are making shorts or Instagram yeah. reels or yeah. YouTube shorts or just putting out short snippets that they do yeah. on a smartphone, yeah. there there is that sort of melting pot, and you know the YouTube second largest search engine on the planet, yeah. and the recommendation yeah. engines that you're referring to, yeah. and the algorithms where yeah. they're saying, well, if you like this, you might also like that. Yeah. And I suppose it's somewhere between broadening discovery and also maybe and there's a counter argument that it restricts um sort of your normal discovery process because it can be i mean it's algorithm led so some it's already predetermined what they will show you next to yeah. some degree based yeah. on your listing preferences they'll send you down an, a different route um but it, it is amazing when you think about the just the sheer amount of video that's uploaded on a daily basis you yeah. couldn't watch it in your lifetime it's no, incredible no, no. yeah um so what about just just to finish off this bit because i do want to ask you some more questions before we're out of time yeah yeah what about the short videos what about the short films what about Mm. the the youtube shorts the instagram reels because you know the smartphone is such a powerful device today and people are shooting stuff all the time yeah they are i mean and i think i mean my daughter is 16 and a half but she started making films on an ipad when she was seven or eight with all of her friends i i did a research project during the pandemic actually where i became obsessed with tiktok and really kind of bought into it there were no tiktok to me dancing so that's a good thing and then i started looking at vertical storytelling and started imagining how that works now i i have a dream that there would be an additional screen in Cineworld, which is a vertical screen, because that would be quite disruptive and a bit of fun. But that's for the future. So I started looking at it from a theoretical perspective and tried to match the habits, the creative habits of my students with my kind of curiosity and ended up making a film called 4-3, where we each, it was basically the problem with teaching film, Simon, is how do you make film history relevant? I mean, silent cinema is easy because silent cinema looks like Facebook loops, train arriving at the station, easy peasy. But when you get to things like, I I love Japanese cinema of the 50s, uh, French New Wave, Jean-Luc Godard. I was teaching a class on this and I was thinking, how can I really make someone like Godard who was still making films, he only died two years ago, how can I reinvent the practice of studying cinema to make it relevant to the people in my class. And so we started a project. There was four of us. We did it during the lockdown. So we did it virtually. We made a film where each of us made 10 short TikTok-esque films on a chosen topic, um, which basically were Bridget Bardot, Anna Karina, um, I did something on Cleo from five to seven, the great Agnes Varda film. I reimagined that vertically. And then what we did is we put the four films or the, the films that we made are in the frame. So there are four vertical films simultaneously playing in a landscape frame. 
and it's on my Vimeo channel, which is uh, Voices on Film. And it was an experiment in how can I, an old man who's been teaching film since uh, 2000, how can I somehow make the study of European cinema of the 1960s relevant? Because for a lot of people, Big Lebowski is cinema history. So we made this project. It was interesting to do it over um, Zoom, like we're talking. We would have weekly production meetings and we planned it out. And it was designed so that you could also watch it on your phone. But this film exists now, which was an experiment in vertical storytelling, I suppose, because the framing is different and you crop differently. I had also made a found footage um, eco science fiction film. Uh, inspired by the uh, Lumiere brothers and the legend that um, Boxing Day, I think, 1895, they showed 10 films in a Parisian cafe. And I imagined that an 11th film had been slipped into the bill and it summoned a demon and no one spotted it. And then, like, this film has sat on my hard drive for years. I turned it into 20, I think it was about 29 or 30 one-minute episodes on TikTok. So then became an exercise in recropping and looking at it and publish it. Now, it didn't go viral, might get 300 views, didn't do it for that, but just was wondering about how can you serialize using TikTok. Now, I've, I use TikTok now less than I did because I've moved on to other things. But really, we're learning from other people more than we're teaching people. I, I'm not a teacher. I don't teach you anything. I might have a conversation with you and give you a suggestion or more likely than not, I just try and create a calm space where you can have ideas. I don't see that I'm a lecturer. And that was broken during the pandemic, which for many people was just talking PowerPoint. And who needs that? So I'm very much into what can you teach me, Simon? Let's sit down. And then like, if it's timetabled, all the better, because we can meet regularly. So that was just one way in which I was looking at things like vertical frame filmmaking and trying to engage with the Instagram reels, and because many of my students, 1920 experts, influencers, can do it standing on their head. I'm old enough to remember coming home from school and my mum had rented a colour television for the first time in, in our lives. And to me, it was magic. So for me, technology still has a feel of magic about it. And it's like when you're playing with chat GPT, it's almost like you could summon a demon accidentally if you're not careful, just by typing the wrong prompt. So, so I'm, I'm in awe of technology. That's why I love it. And that's why I just, I look to see, I think really, Simon, I just say, what happens if, what happens if I do this? And with digital technology, the answer is, well, if it goes wrong, delete it. I like that a lot. I, I love the, the concept of finding that 11th film. <laughs> putting yes. it in. Yeah. I think well, that's very creative. Yeah. yeah. Very yeah. good. And you, you you made me think about something there. You were talking about televisions and remembering when the colour television arrived, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. And Sophie Cross, who is a founder and a publisher, she she's responsible for a Freelancer magazine. But she put a post out recently that she'd been on a 12-hour walk. And I thought, that's interesting, a 12-hour walk. That's pretty long. But it was something that she'd picked up from somebody else who'd passed, that, passed it on. That yeah. if you go on a 12-hour walk and you don't take technology with you, you don't have the smartphone with you, and it's just to spend 12 hours on your own. Apparently, you know, a lot of people have done this. Yeah. And it's quite interesting because she kind of agonized over taking the phone for security or not. Yeah. And it's a bit like you saying, I remember the color television arrived. There was a time when people left the home without a smartphone. Yeah. 
and were just left with their own thoughts. And then I think she made it as far as the first block of stores and bought a notepad and pen just so she could <laughs> write down a few things about what she she wanted to be able to serialize it when she got back. Uh, she bought postcards, actually. That's right. Yeah, she yeah. wrote on postcards. Yeah. Um, but also you mentioned Vimeo, and I did want to pick up on you have a manifesto on, on your Vimeo channel, don't yes. you, which is Voices yes. on Film. Yeah. Can you maybe just tell us a little bit about what you put on Vimeo? It started from uh, an impulse with looking at creative students. I had a really good uh, group one year and they weren't being challenged. They weren't making films. I mean, like this is one of the myths of film education. A lot of the time they don't make films. We spend too much time or used to. I mean, I, I, my background is in assessment. I designed Ireland's first ever single on its film degree where you did film and photography, but you didn't do it with English or drama. So I have a long tradition of worrying about how film is taught. And I just found myself thinking, here are great students and they're not making films. So I was in the IFI cafe and bumped into Professor Charles Barr, one of the kind of foundational film scholars, uh, big uh, set up a film studies department in East Anglia. And I, I was chatting to him and I was thinking, 10 years ago, I would have recorded an interview with him and then published it by Faber and Faber in conversation with. And then I said, no, I'll just sit down and point a camera at him. So I got this crew of students together and a colleague of mine, Connor Murphy, and we got Charles to sit down on a sofa and we made five five-minute creative documentaries with him, which I let the students edit. And this uh, editor did an amazing job where Charles told the story of writing about Hitchcock and uh, studying at Slade School in the 60s doing an MA in film, which I think it was an MA. It was one of the first ever. It was an extraordinary thing. And we needed a platform for it. So have a Vimeo channel called Voices on Film where these documentaries sit. They're only about five minutes each. Uh, I use them in class occasionally. I'm probably the only person that still watches them. And that was 2014. And Voices on Film also is, I suppose, like an ac academic imprint. So... We, if we like student work, we'll publish it. There's a couple of bits up there. I made a film in 2017 called Lumiere Word Cloud, which was another experiment with a group of students where, inspired by the Lumiere brothers, we chose 10 relevant words like wine and baby. And then everybody went off and found gifts. And then we dropped them into a timeline. So it's an experimental film composed entirely of GIF files. And it was just kind of like, well, early cinema was loops. These are loops. Uh, 4.3, the uh, vertical frame film is there as well. And really, I suppose it's a platform. We also used to, before the pandemic, create uh, live academic events. I did a storytelling uh, event in 2016 with a couple of YouTube gamers because I, I've been playing video games since 1981 as well. So it's another passion. I was playing this afternoon for 10 minutes just to kind of turn off the laptop. So it's a platform. Again, and it is a manifesto. It's about creating opportunities for people to basically have URLs on their LinkedIn feed. So when you go to the featured section, if you want, and if you've collaborated, you can put your film up there. Um, other students have had IMDB credits and things like that. Because, I, you know, it doesn't give you a job. But, like, if you're in a job interview, people want to know what you've been doing. And it's far easier often to show people than it is to sit and tell them, I think. 
or show them before. You won't show them in the interview. So no, so that's part of my outreach, I suppose, which is the wrong word. It makes me sound like a missionary, but I'm quite evangelical about these things. But part of that is to give people opportunities to put their skills into practice rather than sit in a classroom and put their skills into practice in their own time, which they do anyway. So we're trying to bring those things together. I think that's so important because all too often you hear of people that leave education, you know, they've completed their education and then the sort of reality kicks in. Well, I still need to keep learning. And now what? Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And I I think having that practical, well, what have you done? Well, look, have a look here, have a look at this. This Really important in real, real world skills, being able to showcase those, I think. Well, I think you're right, because fundamentally, most people will enter the marketplace with a degree now. I mean, it's kind of like degrees like the old A-levels, which is what I was doing. So it's how do you differentiate yourself in a crowded marketplace? Uh, If you think about the capacity for creating content through editing, video, script writing, um, It's amazing that more marketing graduates don't have those skills. A lot don't. A lot go into the industry with all of the theory, but have never edited a video. And so I think part of that also is this is where the reorienting comes in through a micro-credential. Watch YouTube. My dishwasher broke a few years ago, and I was too stingy to pay for a plumber to come out. So I watched a YouTube video, and it told me to buy a 10-euro spanner and this is where you turn the screw. So like we use YouTube all day, every day, don't we? And I think that's where learning is. And the classroom is often the last place you learn anything now, which sounds a bit controversial, but when you're stuck into that old traditional groove of what you might call children talk, you're listening, especially if there's an exam involved. I mean, that's another topic. We'll talk about that another time, but um, I have a, a lot of theories on assessment. Points. Yeah, they're yeah. great points because the world changes, you know, things change. Absolutely. And, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think all we can do, Simon, is acknowledge that publicly so people aren't surprised when it changes again. Hmm. Hmm. Great point. Yeah. Well, look, I do want to ask you a few other things now. Um, Please do. Please do. I wanted to ask you about obviously, you, you've written a book, um, but also about the books that you like, uh, you know, whether yeah. it's a particular author. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm imagining there's some film books in there somewhere along the lines. And yeah. also your own learning style, because yeah. obviously you you have a number of different interests, some of which you've mentioned already. Yeah. But when it comes to learning for yourself, is it yeah. an audio book, a physical book, you know, the smell of the print, the cracking of the spine? Um, or, or, you know, or do you like meeting people? Is it just the discussion and that iterative sort of creative process of being with people? How does it work for you from a learning style? And are there any sort of books or, or areas that you could maybe share with us? Um, yeah, we'll, we'll rewind slightly. So growing up in, uh, this small town in the South of England, it was full of secondhand bookshops. They were just everywhere. It's not quite a feature in lots of other places. But everywhere you went in Hastings, in East Sussex, where I grew up, there would be a secondhand bookshop and they were just floor to ceiling. So I started, now I was thinking about this. Um, I got into music at that time as well. I remember, and it was Lloyd Cole and the Commotions. And there's a line from Are You Ready to Be Heartbroken where he says something like, read Norman Mailer or get a new tailor. And I took him literally. And then the next time I was in one of these shops, I started looking at Norman Mailer book. And I, the Deer Park is one of my favorites. And then it got me into Iris Murdoch, who I absolutely adore. 
and under the net about the struggles of being a writer. So I started looking, I suppose, at 50s fiction and then Kerouac and all of those things that when you're an impressionable teenager, you go to and they were kind of cultural reference points at the time as well. And so I really wanted to be a writer. And then used to write for probably old novels, mouldering in uh, attics, scattered around rented accommodation and things like that. And then when I went to university, eventually, I thought that the it would be academic writing that would really scratch that itch for me. And then so I published my PhD, et cetera, et cetera. But I have found that actually, and I've got my daughter to thank for this, actually, even though I do publish academic articles and I'm working on something else at the moment, that's not really what I wanted to do. So I started writing novels again. Um, I started sending stuff to people, but became bored of waiting for an email to say no. So I bought 10 ISBNs and I basically, this is my learning style. What happens if I buy 10 ISBNs? So then you have to start doing things like, oh, I'm going to need a cover. Okay, you need to do this. So I, I wrote a book called um, Falcon Boy and Bewilderbird, which were two hopeless superheroes, um, published that. And that's that then led me on to, I've written four books in a series called Viro, which are zombie fiction seen through the eyes of a boy with special needs who wakes up to find his mum's gone missing and he goes looking for them. Actually, it turns out that they're all set fictionally in Hastings on the South Coast. And I started publishing those myself. Now, a lot of people may say, ah, self-publishing, what do you know? You need to wait to be rejected 400 times by Penguin. And believe me, I've been rejected by Penguin and lots of other people. So I now just have a series of books that are available on Amazon, might make five euro a month. I would like to make 500 a month, but wouldn't we all? But that was another part of this journey where I think I just stopped waiting for permission. And like I was saying earlier with students, don't wait for someone to say, hey, you can make that film, but just go and make it and then deal with it afterwards. And I did the same with writing. Now, funnily enough, I'm now back into, I'm trying to hawk a 93,000 HP Lovecraft Dublin during the banking crisis novel. I'm trying to hawk that around the more traditional route because the downside of self-publishing is you need to be your own marketer, your own agent, you need to be your own social media manager, and then you have to find time to write as well. So my learning journey is a constant cycle of exhilaration and frustration, but then I think that that's standard. Um, I have a WordPress blog, which I use as a kind of central hub, and then I, I share stuff on LinkedIn and Twitter, although Twitter is now broken. It's a kind of shell of what it used to be. So I think answering your question, Simon, my learning style, I suppose, I, don't, I wouldn't really have any, rec any books. I'm big into universal design for learning. I've recently completed a digital badge on that. And basically these principles are, when I come in, I was in a classroom today at 11, I look out across 50 people and my classrooms, like everyone's classrooms, are more diverse in 2023 than they have ever been. People have a wide range of origins and stories and are all in this space. And most of the time, we're still asking them to do things that were being done to students in the 1950s, exams and essays. And so my thing at the moment, inspired by this digital badge, and I've been thinking about this for a long time, is how can I make everybody in the room engage with something that is meaningful, has to carry a grade because 
that's what the university is. And so I'm very interested in broadening access and experiencing and allowing people to be their best self rather than conform to a standard which isn't necessarily where they will shine the most. Exams are the classic example. But even writing essays nowadays, I try and give people as many options around writing essays or writing different styles, or even don't write an essay in Word, write it in PowerPoint, because then you can stick images next to it. Or however you might do it, lots of people use things like InDesign or what would have been Adobe Spark. So it just allows you to do the same thing slightly differently. And it may be that that's where your skill set is. But if I say to you, no, it's going to be Word, it's going to be Times New Roman 10 point double space, kind of doesn't sit with where we are today. So that's that's what I think Absolutely. about that. Absolutely. And a great way to foster creativity. So that's great. Oh, I hope so. Um, well, thank you for sharing that. Uh, what about on your journey, whether it's back to your educational days or growing up in Hastings or maybe something more recent? Uh, mm. What about people that you admire, people that have inspired you along the way? Um, when I ask you that question, what, what springs to mind? I, I am a diehard Liverpool FC fan and have been since about 1976, which is kind of revealing my age. Uh, I have to say, Jurgen Klopp, I wish I worked for him. Now, I don't think it matters if you're a football fan or if you're a Liverpool fan, but here is someone who simply understands what it is to be authentic in a truly global sense. And whilst there may be times where there are elements of a kind of like small elements of caricature, he gets angry sometimes, I just see the transformative impact that he has had on other humans around him. And always just wonder, it must be great knowing he's your boss. He's interested in people, he cares. We've all worked in an environment where people don't care and are not interested. And I just see, I probably will never meet him. It would be great to meet him. I'd probably be a bit tongue-tied. But I just really love passion. And whatever else you may say about him, and a lot of people don't like him, I get that. You can't deny how passionate he is, how real there is kind of care etched on his face at every moment. And I think if you can bring that into wherever you are, then that's half the battle. Because if people see you care, then it makes them wonder if they should care. And then you have that in common. And then you start caring together. And that's where the energy is. So I'm going to say, Simon, Jurgen Klopp, simply because he's transformed my beloved club. Now we're going for a slump at the moment. But that's, that's part of the football journey, really. Well, I think passion and caring are two extremely powerful uh elements yeah uh, and when you when you meet when you meet a human that carries both of those traits yeah um you can sense it you know we, we it kind of resonates with you so that's yeah. that's really good so thank you for that um <laughs> now uh, you you talked about you know hawking around the, the latest lovecraft-esque uh, <laughs> book which sparked my interest immediately yeah, i yeah, thought yeah, that yeah. sounds yeah. interesting yeah but when you look forward over the next sort of six to 12 months mm. what are you hoping to achieve what does your roadmap look like how do you plan uh what's on the horizon that's a good question so Creatively, I have this novel that I'm trying to hawk. Uh, it's called Terminal Transit, and it imagines an island when there was the credits for a transfer scandal that actually the 
the island was sold to a, a band of intergalactic demons who then kind of like come to Ireland and then try and destroy it. So that there's that. I mean, I've had that for 10 years now in various forms. It's at a stage where I started sending it around to people, got a few polite no's, but then, you know, I'm going to keep going with that. I've got another one, which is funnily enough, set in Hastings, which is like an Edwardian X-Files uh, set in 1913, just before the First World War, about a, uh, a boy who can see and speak to the dead. That would be the novel thing. I'm trying to grow my brand so that the zombie books, I've taught myself to script write, so I might be able to convert them into scripts. I'm trying to teach myself to create a series Bible so I might start being able to hawk this. Someone told me there was a demand for content, so I thought I might try and meet that demand. Professionally, I'm doing what I'm doing. Um, I've been on a bit of a journey to find how else I can tell my story if I'm not Dr. Film. Because in 2023, not everybody wants Dr. Film anymore, but people might want everything else I can do if I didn't call it Dr. Film. So partly what I'm 2023 is, is actually finding new words to say about myself. Now, we're, we're both big on LinkedIn, and that's the biggest challenge, that the single string under your name, the name's the easy bit. What do you say under there? So I'm undergoing some kind of, it's not dramatic, but I want to find some new words for a new story, see where that goes. Um, I'm embracing any technology that comes along and uh, I'm thoroughly enjoying the upset being caused by chat GPT. Um, I suppose that's where I see myself for, for the next six months, because that's almost Christmas now, really, um, back end of the summer. Where we will be next year, I have no idea, because if things can change as rapidly as they did from October to November 22, then what's it going to be like in February 24? It's going to be quite an exciting time. And along the way, I'll be teaching and doing all of these things that pay the mortgage and do all of those other things. But I'm hopeful, Simon. I mean, this is my favourite time of year. By Christmas, I'm beaten and battered, and that's it. But January, February, I'm still bright-eyed. Here we go. This is the year. Let's go for it. And so I'm energised at the moment, and my plan, Simon, I suppose, to put it naively, is to simply go for it and see what happens. I really like that. That's a great way to put it. I was talking to an entrepreneur recently who's had just raised a big round, actually, of funding for okay. his company. Yeah. But he he was explaining to me over the last number of years just the amount of work that he puts in through the year. He sort of described it in the way you've just described it. By the end of the year, he's just completely running on empty, and he needs yeah. he he plans a holiday around that time just to reset himself yeah. with his family. Um, but yeah, I like that. And it's funny, isn't it? How we come back again for a new year, full of energy and full of ideas. Yeah. yeah. I think funny. there was, uh, there was a LinkedIn post the other day, which I mean, like we're all mindful of buzzwords, but one of the key things I think that the pandemic taught all of us and is a word we should all be using about ourselves is resilience. We have a new resilience, I think, which sometimes doesn't seem to be there. But we always find that energy to keep going. Is it because it's about being creative? Is it about learning? Is it about caring? Or is it just about being alive? And then, like, I mean, like, I, 
everywhere I look now, people are dying. Terry Hall died the other month from the specials, all of these kind of things. I'm at that age now where it means more than it did in the 20s. So I, I wonder whether this energy is just about staying alive as long as possible. Seeing if you can get to Christmas. I don't want to sound pessimistic, but you know what I mean. I mean, it's vital, I think, to just be moving forward. Sometimes we stop, but I think it's important to just keep going as much as we can. Sometimes we run, other times we crawl, but just that tiny, can we get to the next day? I don't know. Great point. Great point. <laughs> uh, well, look, that sort of almost brings us to the end. And before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you two things. Hmm. One is, is there anything that we haven't touched on? And we've touched on a lot of topics, but is there yeah. anything else that you want to maybe share with our audience here today? But also, and importantly, if people want to find out a little bit more or reach out and get in touch, where is the best place to send people to? Um, yeah, I, I, we've covered far more than I was expecting, Simon. So thank you for letting me just kind of ramble, I suppose. It's a great opportunity to talk. In terms of reaching out, I, I spent a lot of time on LinkedIn. That's a place where everyone can find me. And I find LinkedIn very curious I used to think it was just for bank managers and estate agents, and I never went near it. I've now realized, and if you look at the demise of other platforms, it's probably the most agile platform that no one's paying for at the moment. And if I say this out loud, they're probably going to start charging. But if you look at how Facebook collapsed and now is seen as a denizen of the over 60s, Twitter is now broken. LinkedIn is this really agile, organic platform that if you just put the work in, you can really get some benefit from so if anybody wants to find me, Barnaby Taylor, please connect. Um, that will send you to all of my other platforms. But we have the Vimeo channel, Voices on Film, which is kind of the research me. But if you want the kind of like, hey, let's reach out and meet for a coffee, and I'm a big fan of coffee and conversation, then find me on LinkedIn, please. And I will respond. And I occasionally get messages from people when I'm connecting with them saying, why are you connecting with me? But my answer would be, why are you on LinkedIn if you don't want to connect? But well, maybe I'm naive, Simon. But I just think LinkedIn is there because it constantly says you may know or whatever the phrase is. And my answer is probably because I'm connected to everybody via someone else. So LinkedIn is the place to find me. And I look forward to possibly making new connections. Certainly look forward to maybe meeting people for coffee and talking about things because that's what the world's like, isn't it? Absolutely. And I, I would echo what you said about LinkedIn. I think it's somewhere between your global Rolodex mm. and uh, this great creative platform. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. think it's changed yeah. a lot. Yeah. Well, look, that brings us really nicely to the end of today's discussion. Um, so thank you indeed to Barney for joining me. Thanks to everybody who's been watching or listening to our discussion around the world. Make sure that you like, follow, subscribe, do all the things I need you to do to help support the podcast. Uh, and I hope you join me back here for more discussions with creatives, leaders, and thinkers. Thank you, Barnaby. It's been a really, really great discussion and great to catch up with you. Simon, it's been my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me and good luck for the future. Thank you.